last time that we were all together, uh, we remarked that we are all missionaries. Every single one of us, whether we're aware of it or not. Uh, We're all called to take the gospel to our friends, our family members, our co-workers, or whoever we really have influence with. Because, let's be honest, your pastor's not coming to your family barbecue. He's not coming to your company picnic. Uh, So that's where we have a role to play. So this text of Jesus explaining his style of a missions trip really is applicable to all of us who believe the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Because the principles he lays out in this text are universally applicable to all who desire to do God's work. Uh, Even if some of the miscellaneous details are for this first century journey, the, the truths within them are for Christians everywhere for all time especially for those who do God's work full-time, such as um, full-time missionaries or pastors. So um, I hope all of you who are actively engaged in the missions committee or serving as elders here at the church are paying close attention because this really captures what God's heart for his ministry is. So there's a lot for us to note here. And as I said, we got about halfway through last week Uh, concluding on the very important note that if we want to do God's work, we have to do it God's way. We're we're not free to fashion what is God's in our own image. But where he has laid us for us principles, we ought to walk in them and follow them. So with that in mind, uh, let us pick up his instructions for his church for this specific missions trip in the first century And going back to verse 11, where we left off, that says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So (laughs) what on earth is going on in this passage? (laughs) Villages being worthy and peace being imparted to houses. Sounds kind of weird and mystical, doesn't it? But uh, because we're not familiar with the language here, um, It requires a little bit more time to unpack this. But what he's effectively saying here is whatever town or village you go to, go seek out someone who is worthy, someone who is good, someone who is welcoming, and stay there at that house with them. You know, the the point is that this person is being sent out on a mission trip to do God's work. He shouldn't be looking out for better accommodations as he's going. Not that he would stay in one house and then decide, ah, this house was kind of small. You know, they had a really nice room in this other house. Let's see if we can stay here this next night. Ooh, in this other place down by the river. Let's check out this place. And constantly looking out for their own comforts. When that wasn't the mission that they were called to do. Because that attitude contradicts what we spoke about last time on that very important theme of contentment and trusting God to supply for all of your needs and um, to, to provide for you in the meantime. And the same thing happens today, you know, where you have uh, missions organizations that just want more and more stuff where you have pastors that just want a bigger office or a bigger desk or a bigger salary, other accommodations that sometimes are necessary, but not always. 
You know, those aren't the goals that we ought to be striving for. I hope that's coming across. And, you know, I've also seen this other version of it in recent times that is kind of troubling to me. Because I don't want to be troubled alone, I wanted to share it with you. Uh, There are several ministry movements that are trying to be the cool church in the area. And and what I say that, I I mean, these guys, these groups are targeting celebrities and influencers in their area, uh, hoping to attract people to their church because, oh, we have so-and-so attending our church. And hoping that people will come to see celebrity so-and-so, influencer so-and-so, YouTube star so-and-so. But the problem with that, of course, is everything. You put the cart before the horse when that's how you are trying to build your ministry. Because the problem is, however you attract a person in the door is what you have to keep providing to keep them coming through that door. You know, tons of uh, studies have been done on what has been called the seeker-sensitive movement, where that was exactly what they were doing. And they found that the churches that had to put together huge rock bands to bring people, bring people through the door needed bigger rock bands to keep people coming. And the ones that put together big theater productions, I mean, massive, like, Broadway productions every Sunday had to keep doing it week to week to keep people coming because people came on to see the show. And, you know, having an event every once in a while is not a bad thing, but if that is your draw, that's what you have to keep doing to keep people coming. And as soon as the church stops doing that, the church down the street that's been watching them for 10 years, they start doing it. Then everyone starts attending that church, and people are just moving around and... It's, it's been highly suspect that it's, it's p- highly questionable if any real spiritual impact was made through some of those production-based movements, for lack of a better word. Which brings up the question, what's our church about? What do people expect when they come in the doors here in South Amboy? What are you here for? What's drawing you in the door? Because whatever it is, that, that's, what, that's why you're going to keep coming, or not. Which is why our highest priorities ought to be the ones found in the scriptures, and not merely entertainment, in other words. So when I look at our church, I think that first and foremost, when we think of the service here, we think about the priority of the teaching of the word of God at this church that we teach and proclaim what is taught in the scriptures. The reason why I go verse by verse through passages like the one we're in today is because I I don't want to just keep giving you guys my opinion about who God is, my opinion about social and geopolitical issues. I want to teach you guys what God's word says and emphasize the thing that the things that God emphasizes and not just my hot political opinion of the day. Lord knows there's plenty of that going around these days. So that that ought to be the emphasis of a church. And, And secondly, we emphasize in our service deep reverential worship of God in the songs that we sing. And when I say that, you know, sometimes it's the organ, sometimes it's the piano. A couple of times I brought in my guitar, you know, 
all of those are acceptable forms of worship. God doesn't care so much how we worship with wind instruments or stringed instruments. He cares what the instrument of our heart is tuned to. It's who we worship, not exactly how we worship. There's nuances there, but I think we're all on the same page there. And the songs that we sing here exalt Christ. They are God-focused words that we proclaim here. And, and I say that because while there's a place for contemporary music, and I, I, I love so much contemporary Christian music, I don't want that to be heard as, oh, I think that stuff is not great. I think m- much of it is. But so much of it has become people-centered rather than God-centered. You know, where the emphasis is on me and how God makes me feel rather than letting the main focus of those songs being about God and his greatness, his goodness, his mercy, his steadfast love. And my place in that song is my response to his goodness. Some of you who are familiar with the movement might know what I mean. But moving on, because I don't want to make this a big deal, lastly here, we are about community in this church. And we do so because, again, you read the scriptures, and that there's a great emphasis on the church being a community. You know, you read the book of Acts, and the people there were, oh, the church was constantly gathering, always together, worshiping together, sharing all things that they had they held in common, being a community knit together. And I, I, I just think that's a glorious thing. And we do that here. It's why we even incorporate that into our worship service by you know, doing the announcements, letting you guys know what resources we have to be available to bless you physically, spiritually, however. Because we are God's community gathered here in South Amboy. So that is what you get when you worship here in First Presbyterian South Amboy. And if you want to attend one of those more events or production-themed churches, you know, that's, that's fine too. I'm not against it, but that simply to state that this is what our church is about, that we gather together to worship, not to, enter, not to simply or only to be entertained, if you will. But we meet with God in his word, experience him in the worship, and to be his community gathered in this city. But moving beyond that, getting back to this theme of contentment and ministering where you are, we go back to verse 12 of our text together that says that as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Again, sure sounds mystical and strange at at, at first. We're not familiar with this type of language. But once it's unlocked, it's very easy to understand. Does anyone remember what the standard Hebrew greeting is? Shalom. That's right. You you meet a Jewish person, they will say shalom to you, which is the Hebrew word for peace. They're saying hi. <laughs> let, let, by, by, by all this about peace is, simp- is, is hinting at their greeting. That's how they greet each other with peace. So if someone welcomes the apostles with peace, they have an opportunity to minister there. And if not, they go on to the next place. 
Which, by the way, is an interesting point when you think about it. If they were rejected, they would just keep moving. The apostles didn't force themselves into people's homes or force themselves to have a hearing audience with these people. They respected their decision. And in the same way, us missionaries today, which includes you guys, uh, you know, we're not responsible, believe it or not, for converting people to become Christians. And yes, you heard me correctly. <laughs> we're not responsible for that because you're not the Holy Spirit. That's a job left to God. It's our job is to proclaim the message. We leave the recipient the response to that message being proclaimed up to God. There's a beautiful example in Ezekiel 33 of a watchman standing over a tower. Because back then, it was the watchman's job. If they could see an enemy approaching at a distance, they would sound a trumpet. They would sound an alarm. And it was their job to alert the city of an approaching army so that they could respond and be ready for them. And they said if the watchman did not Sound the alarm, whatever bloodshed was upon them. You didn't want that guilt. But it did go on to say, if the watchman sounds his horn, if he sounds the alarm, and no one does anything, it's not their fault. The message went, went out. They're not, they can't force people to comply with it. And I think there's a very interesting parallel for us today. Our job is to be like the watchman, to tell people the gospel, to simply inform people of the truth, to tell people the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, that he died to forgive us of every sin we have ever committed, past, present, and future, so that those of us who believe in him, you know, aren't trusting in our own works to save us, from our sins, but that Christ has forgiven us, that he is the only way to God. And all we need to do is turn from our sins, which the Bible calls repentance, and believe in what God has done for us. Our job is to communicate that message. The rest is between us and is between them and God. (laughs) It's been said that there's only two types of people in this world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And to those who God says to the people, thy will be done. He gives us that choice. And verse 14 continues in this point as it says, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Now, the Jews in the first century would dust off their sandals when they would arrive back home in in Israel from a trip to Edom or Moab or one of the nearby uh, countries. They would literally shake off the dust of their feet, um, dusting off their sandals, uh, symbolizing that other nations were unclean and they didn't even want the dust of those countries coming back into their country. And so, whether you can have your opinions on that custom, but that was their custom at the time that Jesus is referring to here. And you see the point that they're making by doing this even to the individual homes they come across. They're saying these people who rejected them 
Your home is so unworthy, I don't even want the dust of your house following me. And that sounds harsh at first. But we need to remember, this wasn't your typical street evangelist that they were talking to. It's important to remember that these guys were coming out, as we addressed two weeks ago, were coming out with those all-important credentials of miracles everywhere that they went. And we read the whole passage so we could be reminded of that. These people were casting out demons, healing lepers, raising the dead. And I say that because it's one thing to turn away a salesman at the door. I can't tell you how many telemarketers I've hung up on just this week. Gosh, we're in an epidemic of that. But it's completely another thing. If somebody heals your cousin of leprosy and you still don't hear what they have to say. That's what this is getting at. It's this hard skepticism that they are running into that Jesus is encouraging this rejection of. Because many skeptical people will say things, even today, like, oh, if God really exists, you know, if he would do a miracle for me, oh, then I would believe. And that sounds so rational, but it's rarely ever sincere. And how can I say that? Because that type of thinking existed back in Jesus' time, too. Doing miracles and wiping out diseases all over Israel. And people still did not come to faith. Matthew Henry once said that no man is so blind as he who refuses to see. Because no amount of miracles is ever enough to convert a skeptic who is convinced that there is no God. (laughs) I was reminded of a, a man who went out to view the stars on a starry night and he's struggling with his faith in his own way. And he said, okay, God, prove it to me. If you're real, send me a shooting star right now. Right in front of him. He's freaked out for a moment. And he settled in for a moment afterwards. Like, okay, all right. God, if you're there, that, that might have been a coincidence. I need you to prove it to me. Send another shooting star right now. Another one right in front of him. And (laughs) he started to think, okay, God, maybe a third one would prove it to me. But as he was thinking about that, he realized the absurdity of what he was saying. Because again, it's either what God has given us is either enough or there will never be enough evidence. There could have been shooting stars all night and he would have chalked it up. Oh, it was just a meteor shower. I had bad timing. What's the condition of your heart? What would it take to convince you? Has God already given us enough? Or is there ever going to be enough? Because there is a severe warning to those whose heart is in that condition in verse 15 that says, truly I say to you, and when Jesus says truly I say to you, he means it. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And I got to confess, it was hard to prepare to teach on this verse this morning. Not only because the the subject is so weighty, but because 
Frankly, so many commentaries go out of their way to avoid teaching on this verse. Nobody wants to touch it. But it's in the scriptures, so we're going to cover it. <laughs> because, and there was perhaps no greater picture of judgment in the whole Old Testament than the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Uh, the director of my seminary's archaeology program, Dr. Stephen Collins, was actually the one who discovered the remains of this city back in 2006. In, in his findings, they have found what appeared to be a piece of trinitite, which is a material that typically forms when massive destruction is taking place, typically forming like when nuclear bombs go off, they find this type of material. Now, I'm not saying God used a bomb to judge his, this city, but it gives us a hint of how devastating this was. And yet Jesus says it'll be more tolerable for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than for the city that rejects these evangelists? How is that even possible? That's a heavy thing to think about. And this isn't fun to talk about. But hell is infinitely worse than any earthly judgment. It's an eternal punishment. And only by repenting and believing in Jesus' payment for our sins is the only way to escape that judgment. Now, good works might make you appear to be righteous, but it doesn't take away the sin in our hearts that has separated us from God. And if we reject God's offer of salvation, there is no other offer on the table for us. There is no other way. I mean, just as there's only one road that leads to Key West, Florida, you're going to take Route 1 or you're going to swim. It's the only way to get in. In the same way, if we reject this offer that Jesus has offered us by his grace, paying the penalty for us, so that we just have to repent and believe, nothing else is coming for us. And Hebrews 10 says of these people that for those who reject Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Simply pointing out there is no other way. It is interesting that passages like this one and Second uh, Peter 2 uh, seem to imply that there are degrees of punishment and judgment in hell. Um, as it will be more tolerable for some than others. And it, it, it's driving at this point that it, it's one thing to know that you're a... It's one thing to be a sinner and not have your sins forgiven by Christ. It, it's another thing to know the way to eternal life and reject that path. It's another thing entirely to have this message proclaimed to you by one of Jesus' disciples and still reject it. It's even worse if you lived in the land of Cana of Galilee and you saw these miracles happening all the time around Jesus and still not repent and believe the gospel. And then there's Judas, who lived with Jesus for three years, who proclaimed this very message and still betrayed him. 
Now, the Bible doesn't give specifics as to the, the, any tears of punishment or anything like that, but we can be assured that God will be just in his renderings. And with that in mind, I fear that there will be many who have heard about Jesus in this country, but never responded from the heart to Jesus' calling us to love him, to repent, to change our mind, to follow him, to commit ourselves to him. And there will be many who will say to Jesus on that day, you know, Lord, did, did we not do this, that, and the other thing in your name? Did I not attend this church? Did I not follow this person the church? Did I not attend on Easter and Christmas every day or every year? But Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. The most sobering words of scripture. So simply put, do you know him today? Do you agree with God that we are sinners? that we need his salvation, that we need to turn from our sins and trust in what he did on the cross for us. Because remember that while God is just in his judgments, he's also loving, he's forgiving, he's merciful, he's good. Because not only did he pay the price to redeem us, but he desires to reconcile with us. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel 18.22 says, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. So if you're anywhere on that spectrum today, please know that is God's heart towards you. One not of desire of judgment, but a desire to reconcile, to love, and to forgive. And so tying all this back together into this overarching theme of missions that we've seen in this text, even I cannot compel anyone to believe what I'm proclaiming this morning. No, I can only tell you the truth and leave the results to God, just like the watchman as we cited earlier. So the word has been proclaimed. How will you respond to it this week? Thanks be to God.